fans, before we begin, just a quick reminder to join our friend Billy Kegler on the Competitive Mindset Podcast, where guests share how they differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. Join along on the journey to lifelong learning and improved performance with the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Follow along on social media at Competitive Pod. And if you haven't done it already, please check out teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball for unbelievable coaching resources from Coach Steve Collins. He also has an extremely active Facebook community. So again, teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball. And it's not too late to help out our boy Takuma Letsum during his fight with ALS. If you go to our Twitter page at 816 basketball on Twitter, find out all the details and how you can donate to help Tack in his fight. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here as always on the Greatest Games Podcast. A chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a CYO coach, a high school coach, a college coach, a junior college coach, a pro coach, just whatever game they consider to be their greatest. That's right. Well, today we have a very special guest coming to us from Fort Myers, Florida, beautiful state of Florida. He has had a wealth of experience around the world in basketball, but he is currently the head coach at Dunbar High School in Fort Myers, Florida. Tim Maloney, welcome to the Greatest Games podcast. Thank you, and uh, it's great to be here. Well, Coach Maloney, oh, uh, you didn't say much there, but I was going to say you're not a native of Florida here from hearing your accent in the pre-show <laughs> chatter. I would, not a, not a, a native, uh, not a native, <laughs> but uh, a native. I grew up in um, in New York, in uh, Queens and uh, in Floral Park and Long Beach and Long Island. Uh, so Queens, it was Ravenswood. So my sound is is kind of. I get my friends in New York saying that I sound like a Southerner and I get the Southerners all feeling I'm definitely a Northerner. So I don't know <laughs> these days. <laughs> well, coach, I moved from New Jersey to Kentucky and then to South Carolina. And, and in both of those stops, people never mistook me from being from there. That's for sure. <laughs> Not my New Jersey accent. Those are uh, great places, man. Well, so you, you grew up in Queens. You're now in Southwest Florida at Dunbar High School. But uh, why don't you take us through a little bit of your coaching journey and sort of the stops you've had along the way to, to lead you to where you are today? Okay. Well, it's, um, it's a lot <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, just the journey. Uh, when, I, when I graduated from college, I graduated from Manhattanville College in, in New York. Um, I played, uh, I had lettered in four sports and uh, I was uh, somebody that, you know, I'm never going to think I was anything special on the court or on the playing fields. I just thought uh, God allowed me to meet some really, really uh, interested people in uh, coaching and in and making people better. And uh, I was kind of a late bloomer. So uh, I enjoyed having a real fruitful experience in, in sports, in particular soccer. Um, I met uh, a coach named Anya Ramirez, who was the head soccer coach at Manhattanville College, and he'd go on to his alma mater and be the head coach at LIU, which is a nationally ranked team. Uh, he really just brought me into soccer. I was at a game of theirs my freshman year. I was a basketball player, and I was just watching a soccer game, and 
decided to run the sideline. If the balls went out of bounds, I would run and get them for him. And my uh, my roommate was the goalie. And Arnie was just always quick to tell me, hey, I would like you to be uh, I like you're really catching on with this. I'd like you to try soccer. And uh, and then I'd say, you know, hey, that'd be great. And so I started to play because of that. And then in the summertime, that summer, he said, I want you to come work Pelé's soccer camp. And uh, that's Pelé is arguably one of the best players to ever play in the game. And certainly um, I think he was athlete of the century um, during his time. And uh, and so I got a chance to meet because of Coach Ramirez, just some incredible people and to play with incredible people, to get to know Pelé, his brother Zoka, um, Professor Giulio Mazze and his family that coached him and brought him here. So I got to see a real humble group of people. And along with all the other coaches that I had in college, my baseball coach, Leonard Bromwitz, uh, George Blessing, cross country coach, Tim Cohane, basketball coach, and, uh, and just a lot of people, you know, players that just were encouraging. So when I graduated school, crazy enough, because of those relationships, um, I was always somebody working camps and things. And so New York University had an opening for their head soccer coaching position late in, um, in you know, in the year, uh, meaning to start the year. So it was like August and their coach had left to work with the Cosmos. So I got a phone call to uh, to see if I would be interested in coaching uh, the men's soccer team at NYU at 23 years of age by a guy named Mike Musio, who was the AD and head basketball coach at NYU and a, and a great alumni is in the Hall of Fame there. And so that kind of started it off, you know, and I I um, I took that opportunity um, in large part because I think when you're told you have a job, that's the best uh, you can. That's the best place to be. I think if you apply for jobs, you're probably not getting them. Uh, there's always a better chance of you not getting a job, not trying to be a, a negative person. But if somebody's calling you, that means you you really have something. So I did that. Somebody called me also at that time about wanting to coach at Martin Luther High School and and assist with their team. And, and I did that a year later. I was given the head coaching job at Martin Luther High School. So I was coaching in soccer and and and, uh, you know, in the fall. And you could do that back then. And I could, and I was coaching basketball. And that's where it all started. And uh, and then, it, you know, um, a few years in, you start to wonder, do I really belong in this profession? And what I mean by that is sometimes when things are given to you, you know, first I knew I was not deserving. I felt of the opportunities I had. I was clearly knew that there would be people more qualified, um, but I was respectful and thankful for them. So we were fortunate to do well. And but a few years in, you know, I wanted to make sure that uh, I always wondered, you know, did I get these opportunities because of uh, why did I get them? You know, because I was well liked or this or that. And uh, I wanted to figure out if I really belong doing this. Uh, a friend of mine's father was a Park Avenue attorney. And uh, and the thought was I was a political science major that I would go back and get my law degree and work with a fellow named Joe Albanese. His dad was uh, a Park Avenue attorney. So I happened to be speaking in Florida uh, at a basketball uh, at a school, using the basketball to kind of share some life messages. The school was Evangelical Christian School. My friend and teammate from Athletes in Action, uh, basketball, Dan Bailey, asked me to come speak. So it was February. 
of that year came, spoke, and all these parents were saying, hey, why don't you come down to Florida and, uh, and become a basketball, you know, coach here and teach here. And in February, you know, in New York, if you compared Fort Myers, Florida to, to that area, you, you, you probably get pretty excited about it. <laughs> um, although I knew it would be a little uncomfortable because I wouldn't know anybody other than Dan. But, uh, but I decided to, you know, the, the one parent had said, this school's opening, this school's looking for people. And I literally went and, you know, the, to the Board of Ed there, Lee County's uh, school district, interviewed with three different school. One gentleman named Mike McNerney told me not to take any jobs until he talked to me. And um, two weeks after I got home, the guy's calling me and saying, you know, well, son, you know, you're coming back down and gave me an opportunity to to work and to discern whether or not, because I told him I wanted to find out if I could really teach at the high school level. I had taught college um, classes. I had been an instructor. I taught grammar school, but I never had, you know, I've coached high school kids, but I wanted to find out who I'd be in the classroom and who I was as a teacher, have somebody evaluate that. And I did that. And that really just, that got everything going because I had a tremendous year. I told him I didn't want to be a head coach of anything. My coaching was my experience. I felt as a coach, you teach the game and you coach the person. So I do both. I said, but I really wanted to be in a different kind of classroom uh, than the basketball court. And, but I'd said, I'd be an assistant anywhere. I just want to, I want to be in your program and become the best teacher I could be. That worked out. And, uh, and it was, it worked out in a big way for me. I did. I was very happy with the with what I learned, what I gained, and I gained a lifelong friend in Mr. McNerney. I got an opportunity to come back to New York to get my master's free at Hunter College in counseling. I did it. When I did that, I helped schools like St. Thomas Aquinas, Nyack College. I helped uh, their teams as an assistant. And then five years later, you know, my wife, I'm getting married and um, and a job that we had fell through maybe four days before I was to be married. And I called Mr. McNerney. I said, are there any teaching opportunities down there? And he said, oh, we'll find something for you, son. And because uh, I had kept in touch with him the whole time. And I said, can I just send my wife to be down there to, you know, to see if she'd like it? Because she's got to like it. And uh, and she did. So um, I thought I was going down to be a counselor. Uh, needless, you know, two weeks later, my wife's, you know, she's back two weeks from a visit that took three days. And she reminds me that, you know, Mr. McNerney said, um, he wants you to be the head basketball coach. So I was like, what? Because we had never discussed that. So I, so I was kind of excited about that. Had an unbelievable experience doing that. Um, had a team that went from, uh, on the hot board was tremendous on the scoreboard became a nationally ranked team. You had a McDonald's All-American, nine division one players and 30 to 40 kids that were just, you know, great teammates. So that led to my college coach asking me to work with them at the university at Buffalo. I went and did so, had a great experience. 10 months later, Billy Donovan, who I've known since he's a junior in high school, because one of my teammates in college was uh, his high school coach's son. And uh, and so I knew Mr. Morris forever. We used to play, come back and play against uh, Billy and the, all the teammates. We were all close. So but he asked. That was a no brainer. It was at a time that I don't think people thought Florida would 
be anything, but I certainly knew who Billy Donovan was more than just what he had done in coaching. And I was very thankful and excited for that experience. I was asked then by Travis Ford to work with him at EKU. We did. Uh, we actually played your Kentucky Wildcats, uh, you know, in the first round of the NCAA tournament in 2005. And EKU had, to one, I think they call it its most memorable season. Went to UMass with Travis, had an unbelievable experience. We, we performed better on the scoreboard than anybody had in any of their first three years. That would be anyone in their program. And then, uh, and then, then the move came. Uh, Travis was going to Oklahoma State, and he had asked me to go with them. My dad had passed away earlier in the year. I, I really didn't want to leave the area, and I kind of was – I wanted to back out of that, uh, out of college basketball, so – Came back to this area of Fort Myers, was working as a um, an AD, and got another and got other phone calls, you know, from people. Uh, Billy Donovan was starting a school with Urban Meyer, and they were looking for a coach. And that I want to, you know, was that something that they that I would want to do? They were going to make that work. Um, and then uh, Travis called, and then uh, but first Scott Drew called, so I went with Scott Drew for eight years and uh, had an unbelievable experience. And then the last time uh, in division one basketball was at Iona college with Tim Cluse. He had asked me before and, uh, and I just couldn't say no. My mom uh, was ill and I, I felt it was a great time to have that opportunity. So we took advantage of that, but then some things happened. Um, I went to a routine physical and, if you would have known me, I, I you know, I um, work out every day. Um, I eat well. I don't drink, smoke or anything else. But we found out I had issue with uh, with the arteries to going to my heart being clogged, you know, so much so that it was one was 99 percent clogged. Another was 95, 95 and 93. So I looked at the doctor when he was saying that with my foot, at, my wife at the foot of the bed and said, uh, so Doc, how come I'm not pulling up daisies? <laughs> and uh, and you know it was uh, one of those moments where you were real. I was more concerned with how my wife was feeling because here I was on a gurney. I just went through, um, uh, you know, a catheterization where they really discern what's going on with your heart after all the other tests. And when we knew that, we knew I was going to have to get operated on for quadruple bypass surgery. And uh, and we and the doctors told us that would be in two days. So um, I knew as a New Yorker, you know, if you get in a hospital room and operation in two days, it's serious. And you can you can you can really watch people's nonverbal to know just how serious. But I was excited, man. I don't know if they gave me happy juice or, you know, I think I attributed to to really faith in uh, in God, just having everything under control. I mean, death's bad in a thousand. But I felt like, you know, I felt very much like God had this under control. And uh, and so we were like, OK, I just said, Joe, great. At least we know. Let's get it done and let's move because I had no symptoms. And evidently I had a fifth vein, which 10 percent of the population have. So it's not impossible that that happens, which helped me survive. And 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 additionally, the veins and the capillaries around the heart kind of found ways uh, and build bridges to get oxygen to everything. The body can do some amazing things on its own. Uh, but finding out what was going on, especially when there were no symptoms, I didn't have cholesterol issues, I didn't have 
I took a stress test and they laughed at the stress test. They said, well, if this is it, you got no problems. Uh, but to find out all this information certainly stopped that year of, of, uh, of work for me, you know? So I had the operation after the operation was always around my son's teams. He was in South, they were in South Carolina at the time with Joanne's parents because we wanted them. We really, we found a hospital and a, and a doctor that was really great at the procedure um, in Carolina. And, um, and so we just stayed there and uh, lo and behold, you know, one of my former teammates uh, and I say teammates, a young man I coached in 93, no, 94 to 96, Ernest Graham played at the university of Florida in football and then played for, um, for Tampa Bay Buccaneers for nine years. He just came to the hospital and uh, surprised me because uh, I didn't want anybody really come to the hospital, but he found, he talked to my wife, went there, you know, kept in touch with me really close for two months. I think Ernest sees me as a father figure and, uh, and just said one day, coach, what do you think about going to Dunbar high school? And, uh, and I very quickly was really excited about it. Cause I, I knew of Dunbar. It was a school that had been closed and that hadn't been resurrected. It was uh, a school that had majority uh, people in communities that I was used to being raised in. And, uh, and that you had a lot of people, Latino people of color. And, uh, and the fact that it was, you know, kind of reborn with a fellow named, uh, uh, Burnside, Carl Burnside, who I had known and uh, and knew the AD, Aubrey Daniels, and just all of these people, um, they they really gave us a great opportunity where my wife could teach, I could coach, my son could go to school. So that's my best Reader's Digest version. Uh, I'm sorry it takes too long, but uh, that's kind of the journey. Um, and so, and that's just really in, uh, you know, that that's in those things. I do have some some different things internationally that took place and everything else. But, but basketball for me has been just that it's been a, a bunch of journeys and uh, a bunch of moves. So I hope that, I hope that answers it. We don't have to go back there. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, it, we knew it was a wealth of, of stops and you mentioned the international stops and that's really, honestly, that's where I want to go and looking at your body okay. online. Um, yep. I was first introduced to athletes in action by, John Chapel, who played at South Carolina, yep. uh, had a nice group there in, in Columbia. And it looks like you just were able to go some of the neatest places with that group. So tell our listeners that may not know about Athletes in Actions and, and just talk yeah. about a little bit about your experience with that organization traveling. Gee, Athletes has been in action, as you, you guys know, has been around a long time. And when I was a little boy, I remember watching a team on television. Recently, I actually posted it. I, I found something on YouTube with AIA playing back, you know, really in the 60s and 70s. And it's a team that was playing on national television and they were playing a really great uh, team. I think it was UNLV they were playing at the time. And they were playing at UNLV. Most of their games were on the road. But all of the people that were playing in the game were Christian men. And so they were truly, you know, a we group. They weren't, you know, not a bunch of egos. And, and the whole focus of the game was they were going to be quality basketball players and it was going to be great games against great teams. But then the conversations that were going to take place at halftime wouldn't take place uh, anywhere other than the court. You know, one of the athletes that was playing for AIA would come out and speak of, and it was the men's team, 
of uh, his faith in Christ and how that came about and to share it so that other people could know that's a gift that each of us, you know, could have. So AIA's platform has been around a long time. I played in 84. Uh, I did not search that out. Like I said, I saw that on TV. I remember praying as a kid. When I saw it, I'd say, man, I'd like to play in the, for AIA and not the NBA. And uh, and not saying that I was ever an NBA player, but it was just funny as a kid to say that and then to be recommended to play, you know, by somebody that had a left field and then going and doing it, uh, you know, throughout South America. And then since then, you know, in each of the decades, you know, really coaching teams of of players and going to some uh, going to some some major, incredibly educational places. And uh, and AIA is really that experience has given me has blessed me with many other experiences. So I I love everything about AIA and what it represents. Coach, this may be I may be totally reaching here, but you talked about your experience uh, with the uh, with the heart problems. And yes, you know, I'm sure when the doctor first walked in and, and said that to you, you and your wife, uh, you know, maybe had a little cry or a little, you know, there's definitely think about your mortality at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and then you talked about when when Ernest Graham came to see you in the hospital and mm-hmm. talked about going down to Dunbar. And that yes. Dunbar was was had been closed and, and was being and you used the word resurrected. Yes. Uh, did you feel that maybe in a way like you could uh, empathize with Dunbar High School because of the personal experience you had went through? Um, you know, I, I really think this. I, honestly, we did. We never had a cry over. And I and I'm not I can certainly it more than stands to reason about how difficult it was for Joanne. But I never had. I actually felt relief. I don't know how to explain that. It's like um, sometimes you intuitively know something's off, but you're not sure what it is. And, you, you know, I mean, I was busy working out like, you know, I'm a guy, you know, was in his 50s and I'm I'm working out with 20 year olds. You know, I, I don't want to give numbers or anything, but everybody I was in good shape. And like I said, didn't drink or smoke. So it was a shock to me. And it was actually a shock to the doctors. Um, you know, additionally, the, the, the two day wait turned into a six week wait because the doctor came back in and said, uh, we're going to have to wait six weeks for the operation because we found a blood clot at the base of your heart and it calcified, which has kept you alive. So I guess, I, I mean, like I said, death is batting a thousand. It's kind of knowing it's, it's something you always know, but when it's you, there's no question. There are things that go in your head, like making sure your will is in order, <laughs> um, you know, making sure that, you know, your concern is about your family. And I was really, I felt good that God was going to take care of all that. So it really, you know, it's, that's not what drew me to Dunbar. I think what drew me to Dunbar was I had coached at Manor High School and I knew the Dunbar community and Ernest was raised in the Dunbar community. And to me, people might have called that in the in the late 80s when I when I came here as an assistant coach and just figuring out if I belonged as a teacher, they would call it a school on the other side of the tracks. But that's where I felt most comfortable. In other words, you know, in Queens, where I was raised, it was more than multicultural. And I was raised with parents that 
didn't identify people as black, brown, green, yellow, or orange. Uh, they're just people. And so most of the isms we go through are learned behaviors. Most everything we go through is a learned behavior. I think our soul is is free of that. And, uh, and, and the conscience that someone has in discerning right and wrong is, is, is evidence of that soul. But I think I went down just because I was in my mind saying, I really didn't want to be in college basketball per se in the years to come as much as I wanted an opportunity to have an impact, you know, in another way, you know, I didn't want to, people don't realize the amount of, um, just the amount, the things that it takes to be um, who you need to be in college athletics. There's a, it's not an easy job. I'm not saying that it's not, um, and it's got, it's changed over the years. I think Jim Valvano felt like he never worked, but I bet at the end of his career with the circus that happened, and how many people pointed out negative things prior to him showcasing how positive a person he certainly is and what he did as a, uh, as a per- person for the ESPYs to fight cancer. Um, but it's changed since then. It's not quite the same. And the time away from my family, I just really, I didn't want that to be what it was, especially since I, I knew now that definitively that time is limited. Most important thing you have is time. And the good news is that my cardiologist is uh, the cardiologist that, you know, basically uh, took care of Ted Williams. Um, he's up in Gainesville and he's a great guy. Um, and, um, and he says, well, I don't think you're going to have a problem with your heart anymore because your pipes are fixed. And he goes, and you're really good shape. So he doesn't, you know, there could be a boatload of other things that get me, you know, just like everybody else. But um, I think I came just because I honestly, I, I love to go to places where in my opinion, you, you got a great, I think you have a great chance to have an impact based on what, who's you, who's you are. Like my impact is not about me. Any impact is about my faith in the God that's in me. But this kind of area for me was the most comfortable because Ernest Graham was the one that recommended it. And, uh, and I knew people would accept me and my family for who we were. Does that make sense? It make, makes total sense. And it, you know, we're Chris and I are fortunate to be able to be in touch with guys that are still in college coaching and pursuing that next job. And I, yes, I, it's, it's amazing. I, I was having a conversation recently with, with one uh, a, a few weeks ago about basically, you know, what are the parts of, of this coach that would have to be left behind as a person to be able to get that next big job, get that next mm-hmm. big job? Because it is so, it's such a business. It's so, like you said, yes. it's so different and it's so neat to be able to talk to you and talk to our 111th episode with Angelo Hill, wow. who, mm-hmm. who coached in college, but now mm-hmm. is a retired high school coach. And just mm-hmm. the, the, the meaningfulness of being able to coach at the high school level. And Chris and I are fortunate mm-hmm. to be able to do that too. Not to say that it's not meaningful at the college level or the professional level. Oh, no, no, no. You're right. It's just a lot. Hey, I'll give you a great quote. This isn't my words. This, these are words from UB Brown. Uh, and he said this like in, I think it was 90, the summer of 94. What he said was very simply was, and he told all he did. A, he did a uh, he spoke at a camp that we had in Southwest Florida and um, at my at Mariner High School. And when he spoke at that camp, 
he said something that I'll, I'll remember forever. He said to all of us, he said, I know a lot of high school coaches that would be great NBA coaches, but I don't know any NBA coaches that would be great high school coaches. Mm. So, yeah. so, so, and that's Yubi. I mean, I would say he's been two-time coach of the year in the NBA. Coach Jason Williams, everybody felt like, you know, how's this guy that's, you know, 68 years old now going to deal with the Jason Williams of the world and this and that. Well, I coached Jason at the University of Florida. And Jason is um, is a very, very special, you know, person, great guy. And uh, I just knew that UB Brown was so authentic. And so, you know, I mean, you can't really judge him as uh, anything other than the top of the food chain in terms of basketball teaching. And uh, and I knew he would I knew he, I knew that they'd connect. And, uh, you know, and and so the success there and that speaks to what a high school coach is. And, and in today's, it's not that in college you can't have an impact or that there aren't, um, it, it, look at look at Baylor, you know, look at Gonzaga, look at All Roberts University, look at North Texas, look at uh, Iona College with Tim Kloos, and now with a new coach. Um, you know, you could go on and on, you know, Grand Canyon, um, you know, any way you go. But I do think it's the challenge is different in college. And I think the travel is different. And I think uh, sometimes uh, the politics, regardless of where you go, it's like going into a church. If you want to realize, you know, when a church is going to be, you know, imperfect, just walk in because you're imperfect, you know. But in, in whenever things are prosperous, so there's a lot of um, people perceive a lot of power, sometimes things that are big time money uh, colleges and stuff. I mean, these aren't easy places to navigate. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Hubie Brown. That was that's what we got to get on. Hubie Brown. All you got to do is turn on the microphone, and let Hubie go. <laughs> no question. And Hubie was a high school coach, Brian, right up the road here, Fairlawn High School uh, in New huh? Jersey, and then coaching college for a while, coaching the ABA, the NBA. So coached Hubie's, at Holy Cross. Yeah. If you look at his life. He lived right next to the Path Trains. His dad yeah. took a job as the janitor to see him through school. Um. When I say UB Brown, I mean, I don't love UB Brown just because of basketball. I love him because of who he is. Yeah. So authentic guy, coach of the year at 68, 69. He's the greatest. I'm going to give you a very inside peek. I know this has never been talked about live anywhere, um, you know, but it's worthwhile to be shared. I don't feel I'm violating any trusts whatsoever. Um, Jason <laughs> Williams came to our campus at Dunbar like the third week I was here. So he drew, drove five or six hours. He just called up me and said, hey, man, coach. Hey, man, how about I come down and play with my guys? I bring my guys to my fellas. I play with some of you guys. And I now said, that's a New York guy doing a West Virginia accent. That's right. <laughs> and I'm doing good. <laughs> so he goes, you know, so he brings me, he comes down, he's playing. I mean, he's just a great, he's a phenomenal. He was, he's such an icon in basketball. It's absolutely silly that he wasn't an all-star every year. OK, because the respect he's garnered, you know, even being out of the league is crazy. But here's a great story with him and Yubi. I said to him his first year, I said, and it was the summer of after his first year, I said, what was it like being coached by Yubi? And he said, Coach Maloney Mal, tell you it's like this, man, like this. Uh, 
You know, he calls me in like two or three weeks in this season and he goes after me, man. I mean, he MFs me up and down, man. And then he looks at me and goes, okay, Jason, your turn. And I was like, he's right. I mean, he had me at hello, man. I love him. <laughs> and, uh, and in truth, that speaks loudly because as simple as Jason sounds is as intelligent and as being able to read people as any human could be, he's amazing. And, uh, and I got exactly what he said, you know, like if you're authentic, I don't care where you are. I don't care who you are, you know, whatever. You're going to get two kinds of people. You're going to get people that are going to gravitate to you and be like, man, I could trust this person. And you may get a couple of token few that say, oh, there you go. And sincere person, I could play this guy. And that's good too, because both of them, if you're equipped, you're going to be able to coach. And that's what UB does. And I learn from others. I'm completely made up of those that I've been around. So UB is a superstar for me. And, and Jay is an icon. I love, I love that story so much. You talk about authenticity and it just looking at your stops along the way, guy, like you said earlier in the show, guys calling you up to come work for them. Your, yes. your authenticity just shines through and in, in what you, what you've been able to do and just being able to get to know you here for the last I'm thankful. half hour. Thankful. It's really, really neat. Um, you know, we want to get to a couple of greatest okay. games here real quick, but one I wanted to say, or stepping out of basketball sure. for a second, I'm, Brett Ledbetter is a guy. I'm starting to read his stuff. He's a, I don't know, he's not a performance. No, I've seen him. He he's talks about he's made a he's made a venue for himself, kind of studying leadership, and he's taken. He's yeah. very organized. He's gotten some great Billy's been on there. Um, a lot of people at Florida think he had a relationship there, and uh, and I love it because I think he brings much of what I'm saying to light. Exactly. And I saw a video with him today with uh, Chris Peterson, who used to be the football coach at uh, Boise State, then Washington. Um, and he basically stepped down at Washington because his the things that were important to him, his family and whatever was on his list, just didn't match up with the, the yes. business of college football. He was gone. Like you said, he was gone all yes. the time. All the, and he's, you know, I'm just done. And it's, and he left $20 million on the table to just be true to himself. Yes. And so just to hear you. Go go coach in high school and do the thing that you love to be able to pour into kids. I just trying to bring it full circle. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, I, I, I want you to know, selfishly, I think I'm as fortunate to be at Dunbar as I would be at any place. There's no big time. I think the big time is wherever you're at, and anything else is illusionary or or hallucinary. It, it's it's really about that. It's wherever you are, and whatever impact you can make. Um, that's the big time that I'm, I am literally writing that down. Chris de Blasio, the big time <laughs> where you're at. I love that so much. I need well, to coach. You, you had another one that I wrote down. Uh, what, what was it, Brian? What did he say? Uh, oh, you teach the game and you coach the person. Love yes. that one. Wrote that one down. <laughs> you, you might love this stuff because in truth, um, it's nothing I thought of. It's just what you, you know, intuitively, you know, that's truth. So it's just what you think being put to words, not like anybody's a genius, but it's just the truth. And I do think this once people get to the truth and they really understand the meaning of real relationships, they, they, what, see, it's not been involved in multiple championships, obviously wonderful championship this year with Baylor, Scott drew, you know, 
and all those guys, John Jacobs, um, Alvin Brooks, um, Ty Beard, um, Jerome Tang, all the people that made me feel like I was there. Paul Mills, head coach at ORU. His office is six inches from mine. I got to, up to him, you know, two hours ago. He made me feel like I was there, you know, watching his run. Grant McCaslin, you know, in North Texas. Um, what they did, he made me feel like I was right there going back and forth. And I mean, I don't know how to explain it, you know, just, um, you know, John Jacobs on that staff was a head coach at a, was an assistant coach at uh, Gonzaga and came back to Baylor. I met on in Macedonia coaching an AIA team at a, an international tournament we had. And John's son had autism and John, you know, came back to the United States. He, he went to, he became a GA at Baylor because um, Baylor had a great program for kids with autism. And he blessed our program with, you know, the truthfully with his, with who he is as a coach. He's one of the smartest coaches I've been around and, and, and a better human and a faith-based guy. So when you think all the stories within the stories of the NCAA tournament this year, you know, the Grand Canyon, you know, the, What's the name? Bryce coaching again. Bryce true, yeah. Yeah, Alvin's dad being at Houston. Um, Paul's team almost playing Baylor. I mean, there's, there's an inc- somebody said something that I thought was just tapped. He said, I'm not going to say who, but they said something like, you know, well, the NCAA tournament is really about crowning a champion, right? And I get, I, I mean, I understand that, yeah, you know, everybody, doy, you know, like we're going to, that's the gig. But but for me, no, it's not. And the easiest way to explain it is we all remember the shot, right? We remember Bryce Drew making that shot. Remember that long? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We talked about it a couple episodes ago on this show. Okay. Yeah. Do you know who won the NCAA championship that year? I think it was 1998. So I'm going to say Kentucky. And it was 1998. And I want you to know, I have no idea. Do you know who won in 2007? In 2007, it was, no, I don't, I don't know. Florida. And Florida oh. had one. It was the second oh, oh, six, Florida yeah. won in a row. Yeah. Do you want to know who won the Super Bowl in 2011? The New York Giants. You know what's beautiful? You are like on stuff like white on rice, but even you <laughs> miss here and there, right? But watch, I ask you this question. Tell me somebody from your elementary school years that made a difference for your life and how. From my elementary school year, yeah. uh, um, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Berg, who hated me, I learned <laughs> not to. I learned not to be a bitter teacher like her. How about that? <laughs> well, I wish she would have been smarter to be more positive because you certainly can learn from the negative. But yeah. I that you remember all those people that truly cared about you. Yeah, and, absolutely. Right. And it, I also happen to be about, a trivia nerd. So asking me who won what, that's the, you're asking the wrong guy. I'm going to know, you know, that Tommy Hur and the 1982 Cardinals won the World Series. So, okay, you ready? You ready? <laughs> but I, I got you on Florida. You that's did. And I why I know that. My boy, but watch this. The only reason why I knew Florida was because that's a team that I wasn't there for that. And I wasn't there for 2006. I was there for 2000 when we went to yeah. Michigan State. But Mike Miller hit the game-winning shot against Butler in the first round, by the way. As Teddy Dupay passed it, yep, yep. almost Mike falling Miller down. Mike a little runner in the lane. And Butler really deserved to win. And the truth be told, then we went on a run all yep. the way to the title game. And yep. so we could have won it, which tells you that Butler could have won it. Absolutely. 
know, but here's my point in all of it. I love that you're a trivia guy, <laughs> but most things is, but you, you know, no one's going to be perfect on that, but they'll be perfect on who made a difference for them. And for me, I, this is the one thing I've learned over time that I always share with people um, because it's worthwhile hearing because it can help you from the moment you hear it on. Never give credit to the people that when they say is, they just never give them credit for that which has made you successful because uh, they don't deserve the credit. They don't deserve the recognition. Give recognition to the people that believed in you and loved you because the power of that will always supplant all the, like the power of love is like teaching someone to fish. The power that hate has is just like giving somebody a fish. It, it's false. It's false hustle. But, um, but I do know this, like if I asked you, um, when did Pelé play his last game for the New York Cosmos and who was coaching? And it would be hard for people to know. There's my cat. <laughs> oh, we got all kinds of people here. They all want to hang with me. But, um, but the truth be told, the only reason why I know is because I lived it. You, you know, when you live, right. then you see it. And I, I'm not like, it's not like being braggadocious. So I say, I'm just saying that people forget. Look, the article in the next day in ESPN after Baylor had won, okay, because it's the truth, was, and, and I, I copied it, said something like, um, Gonzaga is the betting favorite to win the national title next year. That's, it's not 24 hours old. Yeah. <laughs> and when's the next thing? Like, and that gives permission for people to think that that thought process is an appropriate thought process. My feeling is make sure that you cop a diem. Make sure that you then recognize when you're in prosperity, the adversity is the worst because you've just achieved something. I wouldn't even say achieved. I think you received something. And in doing so, you got to realize that you got to win the next day and you got to win the next day after that. There's going to be more games, not just on the court that are going to come from this. So never get lost. Does that make sense? It does. And that, you, yeah. I mean, what you kind of say there harkens back to the great John Wooden. And he yes. had that, that, that pamphlet in his wallet that he kept. What was it? The eight points or whatever. Yes. I don't, I don't remember all of them. I know yes. good books, especially the Bible. But yes. the I always remember and I pass on is make every day your masterpiece. Every that's great. That's exactly right. And let me tell you something. You just touched my heart big. In 2001, Bill Sweek, who played for John Wooden, I was in California. I was speaking to a group of AAU basketball players from a team, the South Coast All-Stars. And this guy, Bill Sweek, who is a dear friend of, of, of a guy that I grew across, just grew up with across the street, who's like my uncle. He, he knew I was coming to California. He saw something and he said, Kenny, he goes, tell Timmy not to get, a, not to get any drivers or anything. I'll take him around. And I get there and here's Bill Sweek who played for John Wooden. And he says, I'm going I'm to take you to meet coach. I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought um, it was the coach at the time at UCLA. Um, but he takes me to John Wooden's house. And you walk into a house that's there's a two bedroom condo. I spent seven hours there. I met his great granddaughter. I met his daughter. Um, I, they brought cookies in and I listened to a man talk about no championship stuff for anything else. I watched him talk to a guy that he'd coached 40 years earlier. And I was blessed by the most authentically genuine, honest, 
uh, non-egoed guy ever. And he had engraved in his, one of his, uh, you know, one of the, the pieces of furniture that he housed his books, read of good books, especially the Bible. So you're right. And, but unfortunately we really live in a world that leadership is, you know, I've, I've, I've heard people try to tear down him and, you know, say he had a bag man and all this crazy kind of stuff. Think of this. And, and this is just sheds honest light on it. Cause I'm talking about things I know. Bill Walton in 95 came to Southwest Florida Spoke to everybody. I was at the dinner because I was receiving award. He talked about John Wooden. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I was introduced to in Pumping Iron Gym on 76 and Broadway by a woman named Taj who trained him because she grew up with him, went to middle school with him. And that was in the 80s. And in the in the 2000s, he was he was one of the commentators for one of our games that was on CBS. So he hadn't seen me in 15 years. They're two totally different people, Bill Walton and Kareem. One is like gregarious, loud, funny, you know, nuts, you know, and he's, his ego is a good, strong ego. And Kareem's ego is just as strong, but he's quiet, very uh, to himself and, and different. And, and that may have to do with just uh, where each grew up and how and who mm-hmm. meant. But I do know this. When I walk by Kareem, I knew I had to say something. I knew he was never going to remember me. So, and, I, and he was standing away from the other commentators, which, which really fit his persona because he's quite into himself. I said, uh, hey, you see Taj lately? And his face was like, uh, yeah. In fact, I did. You know, I saw her at such that, how do you know Taj? I go, well, she introduced me to you at Pumpin' Iron Gym in uh, 1988, 87 or 88 it was. And I said, uh, and he goes, you remember that? And I said, listen, you remember when you meet the captain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he don't remember meeting you. You yeah, remember meeting him, yeah. that's for sure. And, and both of those guys love John Wooden like a father. So my point is, that's coaching. When two guys that are that strong ego-wise, that are top of the food chain, intelligent, experienced, all kind of, prosperity and all kind of adversity that comes with prosperity that no one else can understand. Give a great tribute to somebody like John Wooden. That's what you want as coaches. You don't want slicksters. You don't want guys that are wearing suits that have uh, playing. Let's pretend you want coaches that know it's not about them. It's not about them moving. It's about others. And, uh, and hopefully that same infectious type of uh, way of being infiltrates all the presidents and the regents, because I think right now it's getting a little out of whack in terms of winning. Yeah. I can't disagree with that at, at all. And, and I just, you know, I'm sitting here thinking well, we're, we're on a podcast called the greatest games here. And like mm-hmm. that to me is the greatest stuff. Like, I love basketball and uh, mm-hmm. I'm not as, as uh, adept at trivia as maybe as Chris de Blasio is. I've never <laughs> run the table on Russian czars on Je- Jeopardy. But my point is like, that's, mm-hmm. that's the point, like being able to hear stories like that, like that's, that's yes. the greatest stuff to me, in, in my opinion. You have great stories. Every person that walks this planet, got a journey. They're all great stories. I don't know. Fame is so fake. And all you got to do is have it uh, to understand how fake. I think Jim Carrey speaks to that point. I think many people speak to that point. But to the world, Tim Maloney may just be one. But to one, 
Tim Maloney may be the world. And I have found that 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 inspires me. That's that's God centered. It's not about me. It's about others. And and I really I want to see athletics be something that is what it was made for, especially basketball. James Naismith didn't create the game to make money. He didn't create the game to, you know, to win championships. He created the game that character would grow in between young men and to me now young women. Women's basketball is superior. And um, and that's what it's about. And we I don't think we can lose that. It's going to take some courageous people that are in different positions where they can directly influence that to step up and say that. And those are the people that, you know, I pray do because that will take real leadership, that will take real courage, and that will make a real difference. I just love what you said there about James Naismith. That's such a such a great thought. You know, he was a he was a director at a YMCA in Springfield, Massachusetts. It was yes. looking for different ways for kids to be active during the winter. Yes. And created this game. And he created a bunch of other games while he was at the YMCA. Yes. And obviously the um I, Brian, I don't even know how to finish this. I'm, I'm so, I'm so flawed. <laughs> I'm just happy everything. you had me on and that you could understand me is even better. <laughs> well, what's so funny is you talk about, you say everyone's story and every, and, and mm-hmm. that's part of what I wanted with, when I, when we created this podcast just about a year ago, uh, yes. it was obviously right at the height of the pandemic and people were sitting in their homes with nothing to do. And yes. so that's how we kind of created this. And, and my point was like, yeah, we'd love to have, and we've reached out to Mike Krzyzewski and Tony Bennett and Bill mm-hmm. Self, and those would be great guys to have on. But we've yes. had on so many people, so many high school and small college and, and middle school coaches, and, and they all have a story, and they all impact lives. And, yes. And what we see, and we talk about some common threads we see through all these different journeys. We've interviewed people from, I think, 22 different states, wow. uh, three different countries now. We just had New Zealand last week. Yeah. And, and you talk about relationships and that was a theme that for a while we, we were running through and, and we talked about relationships. We talked about relationships with Frank Martin. I remember, you know, yes. a South Florida guy. There's now, you know, obviously at the university of South Carolina. So just all this stuff that you've talked about is just like, uh, I don't know, Brian, I'm just, I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm going to send you a great, I'm going to send you something personally about Frank Martin and about our teams when we met at a, you know, Scott, we, we, it was the last game that I participated in for Baylor. It was in New York City of all places. It was the press conference prior to a plan. And I'll give you a thing to let you know how close I am with Frank. I, I, um, uh, I, I, I watched Frank coach his first game at Miami Senior. My relationship goes with him way back to when um, he was let go at Miami Senior and he was a JV coach then at a school in Miami and just watching him bring his team up to our teams in Florida. It wasn't like I didn't, I always, I always, I always spoke of Frank, especially in any basketball clinics by the way he coached and defensively, I've never been, I mean, he's, he's, he's off the food chain. He was somebody that, you know, like Anthony Grant, like Audie Cabrera, like so many people, you know, came through a program at Miami senior where, uh, you know, coach, Marcos, Shaky Rodriguez, you know, had an impact. Morgan, Joe, you know, John Wooden was asked one time, who's the greatest coach he's ever, he said, Morgan Wooden, didn't, didn't stutter. He goes, what Morgan Wooden does, I admire. It's a high school coach. So like I said, fame is kind of, 
I don't have anything against the Kardashians. I don't know them or anything, but I don't really know where their fame is founded. You know, like I get that they're famous and that's fine, you know, and whatever that means. But what does that mean about fame? But if I if I talked about anybody and I talked about Frank Morris, that coach Billy Donovan and that changed basketball and that coached Timmy Clouse, who changed, you know, college basketball to a large extent at Iona, um, you know, that's greatness. You know, it's different. The boob tube makes you a boob sometimes like it, it'll, it'll make you well known to a face, you know, and maybe some people gravitate towards that because they figure they can use that to champion a cause they have. And that's fine, but it doesn't qualify greatness. You know, if my savior was an itinerant preacher and his dad was a carpenter, I mean, nothing from nothing, you know, I don't know anybody on a, Sunday or whatever, that's going to be paying homage to any actor, actress, political figure, anything else. But I do know that that's the case for this guy that lived 2000 years ago that much of the human race recognizes. And I'm not preaching. I'm not trying to step on a platform. I'm not trying to step on anybody's spiritual beliefs at all. I'm just throwing out that which I know is true and something that certainly I'd be, wouldn't I be a fraud not to say something that affected my life to get other people at least to be inquisitive enough to listen. Coach, I love it. And I, I tell you, but Blas, I've got a way to, to finish this podcast. So you've dropped gym after gym after gym for, for me, one I've already just posted on my, my computer here that the, the big time is where you're at. That's going to be staring at me until it flies away and I'll put it back up there again <laughs> after it flies away. Um, but th- a lot of what you shared is going to help a lot of people. Um, but what would you say, say you're stepping into an elevator that's going up five floors with a coach that has just gotten his first job, whether it's high school or college, you've got five floors to talk to him in an elevator. What do you tell him? And he just stepped into his job. He just stepped into his job. I was asked this question by a great coach, strength coach at Baylor. Um, and that, that has since left Baylor and is now in the pros working. He said, what would you tell a young coach? And I would say this, um, when your players let you know or question you on something, don't bark back at them and say, hey, man, get on the line. You don't need to do any thinking right now. Just get over there on the line. We got business to take care of. Make sure you understand you're playing. I'm directed. You just, you, don't do that because you're just exhibiting the fact that you really don't know. the. <laughs> if you don't know the answer, just tell the, tell the young person, hey, you know what? That's a good question, man. Let me think about that. I go, let's get through practice, but that's a great question. Let's address it. Let, I'm going to address that and we'll figure out the answer to that. In other words, no one, any the, the, the smart people, the, the biggest mistake they make is that they think they're smarter than the next guy. Uh, when you're a coach, just because you got the opportunity to coach, and I know that for me at NYU in soccer, because I was 23 coaching, I knew I didn't deserve the job. So it wasn't my goal to think I was smarter than anybody else. Leadership isn't about a title. It's about getting people to follow you. How do you get people to follow you? Be authentic. Be honest. That doesn't mean don't be disciplined. Don't make people accountable and all. But, you know, be real. Take your kids to lunch. Go by the classroom, you know, see them. Make sure if you're walking with the athletic director or with the media people or whatever, that you always bring them in. One, one piece of advice, something I learned from Coach Carter 
Uh, that's the, the coach Carter that had the movie out years ago. Anytime he would do anything with his team and they wanted to interview him, he'd have every one of his players come and stand next to him. And he'd tell the interviewer, listen, all of my players are going to stand next to me as we do this. That's how we do it. And so make everything a we thing. Don't make it a me thing. Don't think about your career as I got to take this next step. I've got to network and I've got to navigate this. Because here, here's the truth. If you authentically do the very best of that which you're capable of doing, which is a John Woodenism, and you do it with heart, you know, it will attract opportunities. If you're a slickster, and believe me, I think Harvard had a class on this, on how to get ahead. But some of the premises I didn't believe in, the premises were, um, listen, on the rung of the ladder that you're trying to climb, just with each rung, you're going to establish relationship. And as you go to need the rung, the next rung and the rung after that, you can kind of do away with those foundational relationships that you had because you want to climb. And in other words, to me, it was like be a snake in the grass, have an agenda, a me agenda. Here's the truth. Your fall is going to be pendant on the strength of your foundation. If you have a strong foundation, you're not falling far ever. You will rise. But if you don't think that, you're fa- that all of the people that are poured into you and that it were part of everything that you did, if you don't realize you're a product of a lot of people that have blessed you, then you're going to have a bad fall one day. And it's a bad thing when you fall long because it, the pain is tougher to recover from. Coach. Um, That's it. Yep. It's, <laughs> I, I'll be waiting at the bookstore for when uh, your book comes out. <laughs> uh, so this has been really incredible. We, we really can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And uh, we say, I can't thank you enough for, for having me. Yes, this has been really, really great. Like I said, Bill, you're going to help a lot of people. You helped, uh, you, you helped at least two co-hosts here. Uh, really, really lit that fire for us. And just again, this is this has been awesome. We'll- hey, you blessed me. There's a prov- There's a proverb. Twenty-seven, seventeen it says, "Iron sharpens iron." As one person sharpens another, and non-verbally, the things I said, you spoke back to me by what you said, but also how you looked at me. Because we both, we all three of us know that what I may have said isn't uh, isn't something, you know, new. It's something you feel. And the fact that you can bring feelings out and put words to it, now you give people ammunition and permission to do the same. Right on. <laughs> Yet again, <laughs> blowing me away. It's, you're right. Body blow after body blow. That's right. <laughs> well, I love you guys, man. Hit me up anytime. Uh, I love Dagan Nelson. All jokes aside, that is my favorite humans, and he's about all the right things, too. So God bless you guys. Yeah, you too, Coach. We appreciate you. And we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. For my co-host, Chris de Blasio, I'm Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Game.